Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. All right, great to be with you. I've been uh, at, at our camp this last week along with a, a bunch of staff just doing some training with uh, the college students. And man, just such a fun crew up there. It's fun to sit around a fire. I'm excited for family camp, which starts next week. I don't know if, if you're signed up for that at all. We're gonna have a blast um, speaking at that. And I just, I just love hanging out with families around the fire um, up there. It's, it's a blast. And even if you're a single, uh, you can still come up. It's still family. So we're all family. And uh, so I encourage you to, to sign up for family camp it starts next week. Well, I have a phobia and uh, it's like a legit phobia, though it's going to sound funny to you, but it's like an, an actual legit fear of mine. And that is a dentophobia, which is the, the fear of dentists. And it actually comes from a very real place. Growing up, my, my, my childhood dent, dentist is actually sitting in prison right now as we speak. Uh, for for operating under the influence, and so no joke, I have some terrible memories with with that man as a as a child, and it's just it's kind of hard to shake those memories. Like I have a good dentist now, and he's kind of like helping me work through some of my fear in the dentist chair, but it's hard to shake some of those some of those memories. It's so bad that my wife has to trick me into going to the dentist. It's like you ever take your dog in the car, and they're just so excited to be in the car. You know, and then you turn into the, the veterinarian and they like start to cower and start to like whimper and, and everything. That's me. Like Nicole will trick me into going. He's like, hey, babe, you want to go out on a date? It's like, yeah, let's ditch the kids. Let's go out. Like all excited. Take night. It's like pulling to the dentist. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and so years ago is before, before we had kids. Actually, before I got married, uh, I sat down and I had a drink of a nice cold glass of water. And I remember this memory like it was yesterday. I felt this sharp pain in the back of my mouth. And you know what that means, right? Like, I've got a cavity. And I knew I had a cavity. But for me, I would rather live with the cavity than go to the dentist and get it fixed. And so I decided to do something that I'm very, very, very good at. Doing the stupid thing. And so I pretended that it wasn't there. You know, I have a cavity, like whatever. I'm a man. I can bear it, you know, I can cope with this. And I did for six months, just learn to live with this cavity. If I had something cold or something warm, you know, I just make sure it didn't touch that side of the mouth. It's like, boom, got this, I'm good. Well, after about six months, that pain started to constantly throb and then it would flare up periodically and it became quite annoying. But again, to get it fixed meant that I had to go somewhere where I didn't wanna go. So I figured, okay, I'll just power through this stage as well. It got so bad that I would be in meetings with people and we'd be talking when suddenly my tooth would flare up and it was almost like you had like a brain freeze. You just kind of like wince in pain. You know, I had to check out for a second just to kind of recover and gather my thoughts. But still, like this is how strong-willed I am. I, think, I figured it's just a stage. I can beat this. You know, I can outsmart my tooth. And so what I figured I would do is I would just try to numb the pain. I found that if I were to place an ice cube on my tooth, it would hurt like the dickens for like 10 seconds, but then my tooth would numb and I didn't feel anything for a bit. So get this, I would take a bag of ice with me everywhere I went, into meetings, into work, you know, just in case, could pop it on my tooth. In the middle of the night, I would fall asleep with a bucket of ice like right next to me. And if I woke up in the middle of the night, which happened often from my pain, I would grab an ice cube, I'd put it on my tooth, I'd wanna cry, and then I would try to fall back asleep. 
it got to the point where I was losing so much sleep. My health wasn't very strong. I was tired constantly. My body just struggled to fight off common colds. I was agitated. My whole mouth was just constantly sore. I didn't want to eat. I was a wreck because of my little tooth. And long story short, I went to the dentist and found that my tooth had been like filling with blood, causing this like immense pressure, like it was ripping out of my gum. And so pretty much as the as the dentist was drilling, my tooth just popped. He had to like stand back. I was just waking you up, making sure you're, you're all away. I know it's gross. So just making sure you're, you're with me still. But I tell you what, after it got fixed, it was like night and day for me. I slept well. I was healthier. Mentally, I was stronger. I could eat again. And it just goes to show that usually when we're dealing with many different problems, it often boils down to just one core issue. Like if I just address the tooth, the other issues begin to settle. And this is on the heart of an ancient blogger named Joel. Oh my goodness, this could be life-changing. We're in Joel chapter one. Joel chapter one, it's page 716, the Bible's in the chairs. If you can bring a Bible, it's okay. We got Bibles for you in the chairs. Page 716, those Bibles. Otherwise, I know a lot of people, people use their phones or tablets, the Bridge app. But Joel chapter one is where we're gonna be. This summer, we're looking at the often forgotten prophets in the Bible, the miners, and they're not called minors because of their importance. They're called minors in that these guys didn't write much. So you have the majors in scripture, which would be like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. They're called like the majors, mainly because they wrote a lot. They were like the long-winded preachers. They were like my dad, for example. So they're called, they're called the majors. And then you have the minors. The, the majors wrote books, the miners wrote blogs. The miners just more straight to the point. And so this summer we're looking at the blogs. And today, a guy named Joel is up to bat. And as we're about to see, he's a straight shooting blogger. Now a little context before we jump into this. Last week we talked about Hosea and during the time of Hosea, there was a lot of success. And so people were just kind of distracted away from God. At this point in Israel's history, it's it's a bit of the opposite in that there just wasn't success. Things weren't great. The nation currently is under poor, weak leadership, uh, which led to economic struggle. The people are fed up with this, and so there's frequent civil unrest and there's, there's protests going on. To make matters worse, there was a recent national emergency. I would say it's called a plague, but every time I say plague while I preach, I get made fun of because apparently I don't say plague right. And then you tell me how to say plague, and I don't understand the difference between how I say it and how you say it, so I'm a little insecure about how I say plague, but here I am saying plague in front of you all. So we're just gonna go with national emergency. It's a pandemic of sorts. And you might look at this list and be like, okay, Junior, kind of feels like you're trying to superimpose their situation to make a political statement about today. No, not at all. I'm just talking about Israel at this time. But I do think that we're going to really relate to what's going on here if we are humble enough to look at ourselves. And I hope you are. Let's pray. We'll just jump right into this. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is uh, not only relevant, but it is, it's applicable that these words that we're about to read really do guide our week this week. And they really do address the problems that we carried in here today. So Father, with your word in our hands, we, we do look for you to speak. We know you will speak. We know you will convict. Father, may, may none of us fight off that conviction today, but may we be humbly, may we enter your word humbly, ready for your conviction, inviting it, and ready for change. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as the lens of scripture zooms in, we find ourselves in southern Israel. Now, last week with Hosea, we were in the north. This week with Joel, we're in the south. The plains are always peppered with brown, wilted grass this time of year, but this is worse. As you walk through the fields, uh, the ground just kind of crunches underneath your feet. Any sort of harvest this year is out of the question. It's a national tragedy. Families fear the worst. It's an inevitable famine that is, is coming. There's nothing to eat and there's nothing to sell. And so families gather around their little tables inside their home to escape the heat of the sun. The moms open up their pantry and stare at shelves that are growing thin. It'll soon be their kids that will be growing thin. Dads, still in unbelief, peek out the window and stare at their decimated crops. There's a feeling that hangs in the air. It's it's a feeling that you might know well. The future just doesn't look bright. In fact, it looks painfully grim. There's so many problems, political problems, economy problems, financial problems, unity problems, health problems. It's like, where do you even start? And is it too late to do anything about it? Well, this morning in one of the small towns surrounded by brown, a man wakes up to dry heat pouring into his window. And as he slowly comes to, he knows his job, to convince a nation and to convince you and I that there is just one problem. The question is, is will the nation believe him? Will you and I believe him? Verse one, it says, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, traditionally, Joel is from this town called Bet Haram. It's just north of the Dead Sea. It's in modern day Jordan today. It's about a day's journey from here to the capital city of, of Jerusalem. And in verse two, if you have your Bibles in front of you, which I hope you do, Joel just cuts to the chase and he brings up a topic that everybody's talking about, locusts. It'd be like COVID today. Everybody's blaming everything on, you know, the big event. Israel's big event wasn't COVID though. It was, it was locusts. It's what the families were weeping over. It's what all the neighbors were talking about. It's what, it's why the marketplace is empty right now. It's what the leaders of the nation were blaming all the problems on. It's not our leadership. It's all about the locusts. And, and maybe there's some truth to that, but everybody's talking about the locusts. And so Joel says, okay, let's talk about the locusts. And in verse four, he says, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. And what the swarming locusts have left, the hopping locusts have eaten. And what the hopping locusts have left, the destroying locusts has eaten. Now, it's hard for us to understand what's going on here because my guess is you've never really been bothered by locusts. They're not a problem around here. Like when I think of locusts, I think of, the, so the school that I went to growing up, um, it was this tiny little school and literally surrounded by, by cornfields and, and fields. And at recess as a kid, me and my buddies, we would sneak off the playground. We'd run into the, the farmer's field and we would catch all of the, the grasshoppers. And then we'd bring them back to the playground. And we'd put them on all the, all the cute girls. You know, so that's what I think of when I think of like grasshoppers, like yeah, are the harmless little bugs, you know? We, we don't see the devastation that they can cause today. But we do have records of modern day locust devastation in the Middle East, like swarms of locusts that witnesses say will just completely blot out the sun, consuming everything in their path. And it's not just the plants that they eat. They're like something out of Stranger Things. They will go into a field and they will dig into the dirt about about four inches and they will deposit 100 eggs. These egg pods are like cone-shaped and fields would be like covered with these cones. You get this, in 10 square yards, which is not very big, 10 square yards, you would have 7 million eggs. And southern Israel was covered in them for miles. 
Now, when you go back to verse four, it kind of seems like, you know, in this verse, it seems like Joel is talking about four different species of locusts, isn't that? Like you have the cutting ones and then you have the swarming ones, you have the hopping ones and then you have the destroying ones. He's not talking about four different species of locusts, but rather the growth stages of locusts. So when locusts crawl out of their, their eggs, they're like, uh, they're like little ants. They don't have wings. They don't really even have quite the ability to hop yet. They just kind of crawl around and they would cut down blades of grass from the ground. As they grew, they would kind of swarm together and they would overtake like little bit larger plants, like smaller plants, but larger than, than grass. After a while, they would begin to hop to be able to make it to greener fields more. Soon they'd begin to fly and destruction would come rather quickly because they're swarming the sky and the ground. If you were to talk to somebody from the Middle, Middle East who's seen this play out, they would tell you swarming locusts, the sound of swarming locusts is terrifying. And they devour quickly. Like they leave nothing behind. They just swarm and there's nothing left. It's almost like suburban moms at a Starbucks in the morning. I went by a Starbucks yesterday. I can't remember where I was going. It was like early in the morning. And I was like, the Starbucks in displays, there was like, 20 cars, all of them black vans and white SUVs, just moms like waiting for their coffee. I don't think anything was left afterwards. <laughs> like grasshoppers. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Joel's point is, is like locusts feasting in a green area. This is what sin does to me. And this is what your sin does to you. So looking at these stages, it's like sin starts out small, like, like a little egg. just kind of hidden beneath the soil. It's, it's small, it's secret, it's harmless. It seems harmless, it's not harmless, but it seems harmless, you know, it's just like some thoughts or a fantasy or maybe a little bit of bitterness. And it's easy to just kind of keep it hidden, but like a toothache, it's, it's easy to cope with. The problem is, Joel's point is like, the sin always grows, just like locusts. Sin's always growing. It's often slow, but it grows. It's buried in the heart but it soon hatches and, and crawls into other areas of our life. That, that bitterness, that selfishness, it, it infiltrates the, our attitudes. It goes into relationships, into marriage, into dating, into parenting, into work. And it's at this point that we begin to notice, okay, something is off. Like something's not right with me. I feel off. I even kind of feel a little bit of guilt, but I'm not quite sure what to do with it. And instead of admitting it or looking at it, is it sin that I'm kind of carrying around here? We then deflect. It's like, okay, I have a little sin, but the real problem is my boss is an idiot. That's the real problem. Like, okay, sure, I contribute to some of these problems in our relationship, but the real issue is my spouse. The real issue is the person I'm dating. The real issue is that friend or that roommate. And we deflect. Some people spend their lives just deflecting. It is miserable, but you see this all the time. This is how a lot of people just spend their lives, just deflecting, 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 deflecting. Our sin always grows. It's like a grasshopper. It first crawls or is buried in, in the heart and begins to crawl and begins hopping and, and spreading the deterioration of the friendship or the relationship and it soon grows wings and then it swarms. And then it's at this point that that area of our life, whether it's a relationship or a career, it just kind of feels out of control. Like the marriage isn't salvageable. The addiction's fully formed. The work relationship is a mess. This friendship is done. The kids are out of control. And that's at this point that there are just so many symptoms 
of the little grasshopper of the sin. And we begin to point at everything and, and anything as if that's the problem. And Joel says, hold on, hold up. You might feel like there's a lot going on, but there's really just one problem. It's just like your barren fields. The real problem isn't that your plants didn't grow. The real problem isn't that your marketplace is empty. The real problem isn't that, you know, you don't have anything to sell. The real problem is the little locusts. And in the same way, the barren field of your marriage or the barren field of your career or of your finances, it's not this and that and all these little minor factors that played into this. It is your sin. Your sin is the problem. See, often many of our problems can be boiled down to one problem. It's like the old story of the guy. He goes to the doctor and the doctor's like, okay, what's wrong? And the guy goes, well, like, a lot of things are wrong. It hurts right here, and he points to his head. He's like, and it hurts right here, and he points to his shoulder. He's like, and it hurts right here, and he points to his, his knee. And the doctor's looking at him, like, all right, you're an idiot. You have a dislocated finger. It only hurts when you point. Your head isn't the problem. Your shoulder's the problem. Your knee's the problem. It's your finger. And yet we do that with our lives. It's like, you know, I, I got this issue in my marriage, and I got this issue in my work, and I got this issue with my kids. Meanwhile, there's just one thing that we're bringing into all of those different areas. Our sin is the common denominator in all those different areas. And until we're open to that truth, our sin will just destroy the next field that we head into. Some people live their lives like locusts. They go into one relationship and it's great, you get the feels, you get the butterflies, it's all green, but six months later, it's like you devour everything and you're looking at a barren field and so I just get, move on to the next job, move on to the next relationship, move on to the next church and then six months later, that's just devoured again. So it's the next relationship, next season, next job. But then it gets worse. As we head from relationship to relationship or from job to job or from employee to employee, instead of dealing with the sin that destroys the fields, we just deal with the symptoms too often, we're guilty of treating symptoms of the sin instead of killing our sin. So you might laugh at me walking around with a bag of ice because my tooth hurts, but we do this with our sin. We just treat all the symptoms of our sin. It's like, oh, my marriage is the problem. Let's just end it. You know, that's the, that's the symptom of your sin, the struggling marriage. I don't want to look at my own selfishness that I'm putting into this marriage. I don't wanna look at my own pride that I'm putting into this marriage. Let's just end the marriage, the symptom, and then I'll blame the other person and I'll move on to the next field and do the exact same thing. Oh, this job sucks, so let's just move on to the next. Let's not check my attitude that I'm putting into this job. Let's not check my pride that I'm putting into this job. No, 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 I just need a new job. And then six months later, you're dealing with the exact same issues that you were dealing with in the previous job. And like locusts, we head into a greener field only to kill those fields as well. Isn't Joel such a fun prophet? It's like, my goodness, can we just go back to like last week, you know, Hosea was cool, right? Talking about God's love, God's, you know, kindness. That felt better. Totally. But this is intentional. See, last week, Hosea sets the stage with the goodness of God. And then Joel takes it from here. He says, okay, God is still good. God still loves you. God is still mad about you. God is still pursuing you. But to enjoy that goodness, to take God's invite, to enjoy the kindness of God, we must see our sin and we must see the grossness of our sin. 
Too many Christians want to stop at Hosea. Yeah, God's love. Yeah, that's postable. It tastes really good. But we never move on to Joel where it's like, okay, our sin is terrible. But this is where Joel is taking us. So in verse 13, it says, you can see in your Bibles, but Joel says, put on sackcloth. He's talking about mourning. And then verse 14, he says, you know, fast. He's talking about mourning. But then look at verse 15. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and its destruction from the Almighty, it comes not a verse you see hanging on your grandma's wall, is it? We don't, we don't like talking about God's judgment, do we? Because when you think of like God's judgment, what do you think of? Like I think of, you know, if you go down into like the loop or the, the city and, and you see some of those guys wearing like, have the cardboard signs and judgment is near. It's like they almost have like a tinfoil hat on. They're just like waiting. They just, oh, we love God's judgment. So it's like, I don't want to be that guy. But then at the same time, Jesus talked a lot about God's judgment. So like, so what do we do with this? Well, let's sit in this for a second. Let's talk about God's judgment. I know you don't want to, but let's talk about God's judgment for, for a little while. And let's start here. And this might sound weird to you, but just go with me for a second. God's judgment now is an act of mercy. Well, what? I thought like God runs out of his mercy and then he, no, that's not how it works. Let me explain. God's judgment is often illustrations of the end result of sin. So he allows things to unravel, sometimes faster, to get our attention as to how we're contributing so that we can change course now. It's like, uh, okay, I'll show you my stupidity. If I haven't already, I'll show you even more. Um, I have a Harley. It's not mine. I've had it for four years. A buddy loaned it to me. He may have forgotten about it. Just don't tell him. And uh, so I have this bike, it's this beautiful bike, and it, it, it sits in my garage. And earlier this year, I was, getting it, I was getting it prepped for the warmer weather rides. Like my youngest loves riding, riding on the back. So she's helping me wash it, and I'm checking the, 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 the brakes and the tires and the oil. And I noticed the oil was just a little bit low. It's like, all right, so I added some oil, and I was like, what? it didn't seem to be filling up. So I like added some more, I put in like a whole quart of oil, and it's like, all right, it seems to be good. A few weeks later, Nice warm day, like the first warm day of this year. Plan to go riding to work. Walk into the garage, all ready for work. Bike wouldn't start. It's like, oh, great. So I grab a screwdriver and I take a few things apart. I notice that there's some loose wiring. So um, tighten those up, fired it up. Felt great. I was like, hey, oh, didn't know I was a motorcycle mechanic. Fixed it. Like all pumped. Again, all dressed for work, sat on the bike. It's, it's running, popping into gear, and the oil cap flies off and shoots oil all over me and all over my garage. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. So go inside, get a clean up, change, shower, go into the garage, clean up all the oil on the ground as best I can. Look at the bike, I'm like, okay, what happened? Figured, okay, maybe I left the, the cap loose or something. That's super weird, it's never happened, but maybe I left the cap loose or something. So I was like, let's try this again. Sit down on the bike, fire it up, pop into gear. Again, oil shoots out over the garage, over me, all again. And then by now I'm ticked, because now I'm on my third shower of the day. It's like, what, what the heck happened? Like, this never happened to me before. So I do some research, come to find out, I added too much oil because the bike was sitting cold for a while. I didn't leave room for the oil to expand. I didn't know any of this. Didn't leave room enough for the oil to expand. I had to, I had to face my consequences to learn what I was doing wrong. So God's judgment in a way was allowing me to get sprayed by oil twice to show me and help me get better so that I'm not stupid next time or I'm not an idiot next time. Otherwise, I would have just kept on doing it and possibly would have broken the bike later on. So God's judgment of the cap flying off was actually merciful to me because I didn't end up breaking the bike down the road. 
This happens in our marriages, it happens in our careers, in dating, in parenting, eating, whatever it is. We go about our lives and, and we don't do things correctly. We are doing marriage out of selfishness, we're working with attitudes, we're parenting with our pride, we're being lazy, we're holding on to the sin. And God says, okay, I'm gonna allow some of these natural consequences to happen, maybe even quicker. Um, I'm gonna speed them up just a little bit so that you can see your sin and fix it before it's too late. Actually, this might help. Let's take this a little deeper. A little theological sidebar for a second. We're gonna bring seminary to the party today, okay? And I know it's summer, but we're just gonna have some summer school, so to speak. And this is good to know. There are two types of God's wrath. Two types. Again, you're gonna need to know this because if you ever run into somebody who went to seminary, like a priest or something, you could just bring this up and you can like wow them. Oh my goodness, they know this. Two types of God's wrath. The first is the passive wrath of God. This is when God allows us to go down a path that we choose. So I went down the path of putting too much oil in the bike. Passive wrath was oil all over me. Now, God could have had my mechanic friend show up in that moment and say, hey, Junior, don't put too much in. But God allowed the natural consequence to play out to grow me, and I have to be okay with that. God does that with all of us. We choose paths. You chose paths this week, and some of those paths were not good. Some of us chose the path of gossip this week. Some of us chose the path of being too fiery. Some of us chose the path of just selfishness or some of us chose the path of pride or some of us chose the path of being critical. And God in his word, his word warns us, hey, don't go down that path, it hurts, but we can go down the path anyways, can't we? Like none of us are like that, are we? Of course, we, we all do that. And God says, okay, I'm still gonna be with you and I still love you, but this path that you chose this week, it will hurt. It's like my daughters, we were up at camp and I knew what that one evening, we we're gonna go down to the lake and we we're gonna do some fishing. And I told them, I was like, girls, it's gonna get colder. The sun's about to go down, so like, grab your sweatshirts. And they're like, no, dad, we're fine. We're tough, we're tomboys, we can take it, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, well, I'm not gonna argue with you. Maybe the best way to learn is for you to just get a little cold. So I let them, you know, we went down to the lake. One hour later, their teeth are chattering and they, they wanna go back to the fire. All of us do that with God. Some of our marriage difficulties, some of our work drama, some of our addictions, uh, even some of our health issues, our mental health issues, can be a result of us choosing a path and God saying, okay, I still love you very much, but this path hurts. And if that's how you're gonna learn, then that's how you're gonna learn. That's passive wrath. Then the second type of God's wrath is active wrath. Active wrath is more rare, but this is when God, this is like the, the classic, like God strikes you down with a lightning bolt type of wrath. Like God directly steps in and reprimands, which he can do because he's God. But he'll step in and he'll shake us to get our attention. In this book of Joel, the nation of Israel is actually dealing with both. God has allowed the nation to continue down this road of poor leadership and distraction, all of that, but they haven't turned. And so now God is using direct wrath by sending in locusts to get their attention. And it's an illustration. Now the tragedy is, is most people, when dealing with God's wrath, they just point at the symptoms. Even me, when I was sitting on the bike covered in oil, I'm thinking, oh, if the oil didn't shoot out, I wouldn't be covered in oil. Like, well, yeah, the problem is, is the idiot who put too much oil in. That's the real problem. But we do the same thing with our marriage. Well, my marriage would be better if, my job would be better if, my relationship with my in-laws would be better if, and God says, if you didn't put your sin into it. And it's an act of mercy because it gives us a chance to like look under the hood, see the problem, 
that's us, and change. The message of Joel is, is that many of our problems often can be boiled down to just one problem. And you know what that one problem is? It's me. And I know you were thinking, I knew the source of my problems was junior. I had a hunch, but I just, now I, now, yeah, touche. Agree. No, seriously, much of our problems in our life, in my, in my life, in your life, they can be boiled down to we just want to be our own God. In fact, all of our problems in our life can be boiled down to just, we want to be our own God. We want full control of everything. We want all the pleasure. We want all the praise. And we believe, like God's word, my opinions are infallible. We want to be our own God. And that comes out in many different ways, but according to scripture, there's three main ways that this really comes out. In selfishness, in laziness, and in pride. The lust of the eyes, I want, I want, I want. The lust of the flesh, I'm just gonna let my flesh win. And the pride of life. We tend to greatly struggle with at least one of these three. Now, if you're like me, maybe it's all three. But I guarantee you, you struggle with at least one of these greatly. And your sin is actually, a lot of your sin is actually an extension of, of one of these three. It's your selfishness, laziness, and it's your pride. The problem is we never want to admit to these. And so when we have symptoms of our sin, an addiction, a relationship that's falling apart, a job that's falling apart, we just want to treat the symptoms and all the different factors and not look at these three, which are the root problem of that problem. Again, isn't Joel just so fun? <laughs> Beginning of chapter two, Joel warns us of a, uh, warns of a coming army. He's like, hey, you think the locusts are bad, an army is next. But then he says this in verse 12, and I love this. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, these three words right here might be three words that you really need to embrace. Because my guess is somewhere you are dealing with devastation of your sin. We all are. But likely you walked in here and you never really thought about it this way, but you're dealing with the devastation of your sin. It's like families back during Joel's time staring at barren fields, looking at you know, their barren fields at the locust ate. Many of us walked in here today, it's like we got a broken family or we have a nagging addiction, or we have messy drama, or we have an attitude that I just can't shake, and you spent so much energy kind of pointing at this and that, you know, coping, deflecting, but maybe right now in this very moment, the Spirit is just kind of working in you to bring to light how you've been the common denominator to many of these different things, how you've contributed to that. It's a painful realization, but God says, even in that mess, even in that addiction, even in that pain, even in that shame, even if you're embarrassed, yet even now, declares the Lord, just return to me with all your heart. Because the truth is, your heart is the problem. Your heart is where that was birthed from. Your heart in this marriage or your heart in this relationship, your heart in this job, your heart in this leadership, it hasn't really been fully God's. Instead, what's been driving this relationship or what's been driving this marriage or what's been driving this career, it's been your pride. Or it's been your laziness. Or it's been your selfishness that's been driving you. It hasn't been God. So if you want to position yourself for God's blessing, which he wants to bless you, you wanna position yourself to see God's vision, you have to return to God with your heart. And my favorite verse in Joel's whole blog, the verse to me that screams the loudest is verse 13. He says, don't tear your clothing in your grief. Tearing clothing was like a sign of this outward symbol of, of grief. Joel says, your clothing isn't the problem. Don't tear your clothing. Tear your hearts, because that's the problem. 
And I think it's here when we, when we reach this verse, like we have to take a time out here. We have to go, okay. When's the last time my heart tore over my own sin? That's a huge question to ask yourself. When's the last time your heart tore over your sin? Like seriously, when was the last time your heart tore over your gossip? When was the last time your heart really broke over this attitude you've had? When was the last time your heart tore over your complacency or your negativity or just your image-driven pride? Has your heart ever tore over any of that? And if not, isn't that a serious problem to never grieve sin? Like if you're like me, we can, I can be so frustrated with like politics, people, kids. If we're more frustrated about everyone else than we are about our own sin, that's a massive problem. And like Joel says to Israel, so God says to you and I, he says, you better turn your heart because your heart is not in a good place. And he's talking to us. So to turn your heart, number one, own up. This is what Joel's getting at. Don't tear your clothing. Tear your heart by owning up. Last year, I was talking with a counselor and my counselor said something that, that hurt, but I needed to hear it. And I, I'm glad he said it because a lot of counselors, it's like they just say what you wanna hear and it's like they just kind of give you candy. But I like going to a counselor, it's almost like a gym. It's like, I wanna leave feeling sore. So just like beat me up and, and that's what he did and I needed it. And so I was explaining this problem to him and he stopped me partway through and he said, Junior, you've been deflecting for like the last five minutes right now. I was like, what? So yeah, this issue that you're explaining to me, it's not that person as much as it is your heart toward them. Now, sure, they might be annoying. They might be hard to work with and they might be selfish. They might have a big ego. And I'm not saying you can't address that, but you can't control a lot of it. You have to own up for your heart. Stop saying it's 90% them. Just own up to the 100% of you. Gosh. When's the last time you completely apologized? Like, completely, fully apologize without expecting an apology in return. You ever guilty of that? It's like, okay, I'm gonna apologize, but like, I'm expecting them to give me like 90%, you know, owning up to 90% of their problem. It's not an apology. Some of us really struggle to truly apologize. That is dangerous. The difficulty to apologize reveals serious pride and insecurities from that pride. I'll go as far as to say this. The Christian life, sanctification is all about owning up all the time, as much as we can. Our ability to own up determines how far we walk with Jesus. Because Jesus is constantly saying, okay, you gotta own up for that. All right, now next, you have to own up for that, and now you have to own up for that. This is how we follow Jesus. Owning up to our own sin instead of deflecting and looking at everybody else's. Number two, take an effect inventory. So you really wanna turn your heart, take an effect inventory. Counselors often do this with people, and it's extremely, extremely beneficial. A counselor will make a person take a full inventory of the people they hurt and the pain that they caused. Now it seems over the top, but it makes us feel the grossness of our sin to own it. Because here's the thing, apologies can often be empty, can't they? I met with a guy um, years ago, he had an affair. And so he came in, like he was found out, talked with his wife about it, they were getting counseling. And they came in to meet with me <clears throat> and he was struggling. He's like, he said, I apologize to my wife and I, I just don't understand why she still has some issues. She hasn't forgiven me yet. Like the guy just apologized to smooth things over. His sin didn't really pain him that much. And he couldn't understand why it pained his wife the way it did. He never actually thought about how his sin affected her. So to him, it really wasn't that big of a deal. We're just kind of moving on. 
And at some point, we are all guilty of that. We gossip, we blow up, we look at something we shouldn't. And often it's just like a quick, you know, apology. Like, oh, luckily God forgives. Yeah, he does. And then we just kind of move on. But a major part of our repentance is grieving the grossness of what just happened. What pain did I just cause? Like my gossip totally just ruined somebody's reputation to another person. And now that person's heart toward that other person is is wrong too. So I'm causing so much sin here. Or the mouth that God gave me to speak blessings, I just devastated a field. My snapping wasn't just a weak moment. I hurt that coworker. I did not show them Jesus and I hurt the name of Jesus through my tone. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't like beating ourselves up because God doesn't, God doesn't want us doing that. This is taking an honest look at the full devastation because if we don't look at the full devastation of our sin now, down the road, when we get to our barren field, we're just gonna point to everyone and everything else as if they devastated the field because we've never owned up really to, fully to our own part of how we devastated the field. Take a good look at the full devastation of your sin. Last night, I was watching a, a, a documentary on the Third Reich. Um, and I was learning like a ton of new things, a good, great documentary. One of the things that I learned was when the United States Army military, when they went into Germany and they, you know, they took over the, uh, the concentration, or they freed the concentration camps, when the Armies walked in, you know, they just saw the horrors of the Holocaust, you know, dead bodies everywhere, you know, just like nightmarish, demonic stuff in, in these concentration camps. And one thing that they made the German people do in the surrounding towns is they, they actually marched everyone through those concentration camps. You have to see what your government, what you guys, what your country did. Because what was happening at the time is the German people were going, eh, you know, Nazi fell, okay, let's just move on. Let's just forget about that. And, and it was like, no, you have to see the grossness of what just happened. Because after walking through the German people, they had this, this full like, wow, what just happened? We don't ever want that to happen again. That was needed. And sometimes we need to do that with our own sin, to take a look at the full devastation of what did I just cause? And then go on an apology tour if needed. Man, I did this a few weeks ago, a little apology tour. I, I was in a meeting and I said something I didn't like lose my cool. It's just like a tone. It's like a bad attitude. Just kind of like somebody said something, I just kind of shot it down, but I didn't do it in a, in, in a very good way. And at first, like after the meeting, I asked God for forgiveness and he forgives, but I didn't feel right leaving it at that. There were others that I had affected and, and I can't leave it at that. So, so I personally, privately went to each person in that meeting and I asked for their forgiveness, like interns and all. It's like this little mini junior forgiveness tour. And it was humbling and I hated it, but I needed to feel the weight of my sin. Not only did that help me grieve it, it also helps me think twice before doing that again. And I don't think I'm the only one who needs to do that, am I? My goodness, can we just end this sermon? I've been beating up too much. Yes, but not without this. This is how we end. Allow God's promises to eclipse your past. It's how Joel finishes the book. The end of chapter three is, is beautiful. It says, the Lord is a refuge to his people. There is forgiveness and there is hope. God has beautiful vision for his people. It's far better than you can imagine. God has a vision for your relationships and it's better than where you're at right now. And he has a vision for your career and he has a vision for your home. And yeah, you might be sitting there thinking, I'm just so far from God's vision for my life, but make no mistake, God still wants to lead you there. The empty tomb means that you get a do-over. And if you're like me, another do-over. 
Jesus walked out of his tomb so that you can walk out of your dead pasture and fix it. He's inviting you into a season of healing, but Joel's point here is that healing doesn't come until after the dentist. You can't skip the dentist. You have to go to the dentist first. It doesn't come until you own up, and it doesn't come until you get help. Like there is beautiful healing, but the dentist is part of the process. And for some of us, a trip to the dentist might look like a tough conversation of bringing sin to light. This is what I did, this is what I did. This is what, I'm not gonna point fingers right now. I'm just pointing fingers at myself. Something that maybe it's been hidden for so long. It's just embarrassing and it just needs to come out. It might look like an apology tour. It might look like getting counseling. It might look, look like a 12-step program, celebrate recovery. It probably looks like accountability. But, but the promise of God is, is the sin that you're scared of, the sin that you don't wanna bring to light, God already faced it. He already faced it. That sin is nailed to the cross. So why are we hiding? Why are we trying to cope with something that's nailed to the cross? Like the sin that we hold on to put Jesus on the cross. Let's not walk with this one more step. The grace that we are offered by God is incredible. God walks with us through the fire into this new life that he envisions for you. Stop deflecting, stop blaming, stop holding on to it, own up and take God's invite. I told you my tooth story, but maybe I should tell you my real problem. So here's the thing, is when I teach, I never want to stand up here as like an expert. You know, it's like, I'm just going to bless you with my knowledge. That wouldn't be much of a blessing anyways. But I don't want to stand up here as like some expert just blessing you with my knowledge. My goal is that when we gather together, I first want to experience this text before preaching it. And it's a humble wrestle every single week. And so this week, I've been doing my own reflecting. I've been doing my own owning up. I've been taking my own inventory. And I've, I've come to realize that a lot of the problems that I face right now boil down to one main sin. And you know what that main sin is for me out of those three? For me, it's selfishness. I can be so selfish. And it comes out in different areas of my life. Like in my driving, it's like that freaking Prius in the left lane just needs to get in the right lane if you're gonna drive that slow, you know? Not because I'm some great citizen trying to make the world a better place, but because I'm selfish and I just wanna get to where I need to get to. And my selfishness drives wedges between my wife and I. I want her to serve me and I, I want her to feel what I feel and I want her to do what I wanna do when I wanna do it. And I can't believe she doesn't wanna do what I wanna do when I want to do it. And when I'm not the parent I wanna be, I've noticed this past week is because of my selfishness. I was up at camp training uh, staff this week, teaching college kids about culture and conflict resolution, you know, all that. And I, like, I'm teaching college kids how to relate to one another and how to date and how to, how to work together. It's like, hey, be selfless. And then in the evenings, I would go sit by a fire with my kids and I'd parent my kids out of annoyance because I don't wanna be bothered right now. Oh my goodness, the, the other night I was, I was fishing with, with my, my girls and my youngest could not cast her line just kept on getting tied like tied up and so finally I, I I didn't like raise my voice but I, I told her I was like I I came here to fish not to untangle your line every time what kind of dad was I in that moment I was a selfish one like I'm sorry bridge you have a selfish pastor you deserve better but like here we are my selfishness is my toothache that I carry around and so going into this weekend I for real hated the sermon because this week I had to realize just how much I am my own problem. But this week I had the audacity at times to think that my main problem was incompetent people. My main problem was like needy kids. My main problem was my wife. No, it's me. 
I was my problem this past week and I'll be my own problem this next week. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one in here. Maybe it's not selfishness for you. Maybe it's pride for you. You're just carrying around this big ego and you get offended easily. You get bothered easily. You wanna fight very quickly. You get very critical because you have this big ego that is just so easy to get bumped into. And then you turn into this like negative critic to appease your own ego. Maybe it's laziness. You just can't do the hard thing. You can't do the difficult thing. Like you know you're supposed to step up, but you don't step up because you're lazy. You're just always the easy way through relationships, always the easy way at work. Like Joel is right. There is one thing. There's one thing for you and there's one thing for me and it is sin. But until we get to it, until we make war on it, until our hearts tear over it, we're just gonna keep walking around with this toothache wondering why God doesn't heal me. Oh, he heals. His vision for your life is so much more incredible, but the invitation to that healing, the invitation to healing can only be taken with a broken heart. Like what's wrong with your life, it's not that coworker. What's wrong with your life is not that boss and it's not your spouse and it's not the kids. It's not even that political party or the global pandemics. What's wrong with this world is we've been misdiagnosing the problem. We've become way, we become better deflectors than we are apologizers. It's those areas that we don't want to address. It's those areas that we get very sensitive about. It's those areas that we want to excuse and we want to justify. The problem is our unrepentant hearts. And the real question isn't, what am I gonna do with so-and-so? The real question is, is what am I going to do with me? Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.